0: Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hello everybody, my name is Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to my podcast on the book of Revelation. For those of you who are interested, I encourage you to get a copy of my book, Follow the Lamb. It's a guide on how to read, understand, and apply the book of Revelation. For now, I hope you sit back and enjoy our study of the book of Revelation. Welcome to our second podcast in the book of Revelation. This morning we're going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 4, and our goal will be to get through the rest of chapter 1. Revelation 1, verse 4 John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion, forever and ever. Amen. As mentioned last time, the book of Revelation has a framework of a letter. It reads kind of like an, like an ancient epistle. It begins in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, identifying the author and the recipients. Now Asia is a province in the Roman Empire. It's the equivalent of modern-day Turkey, the western coast of modern-day Turkey. And there are going to be seven churches, and we'll see those seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 more in more detail. The letter was written to them. Now, the letter is introduced to us as, uh, Grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler, of the kings of the earth. Notice, of course, this Trinitarian formula. This is common, or at least not uncommon, in the New Testament, that the author will make reference to a, the Trinity, First, of course, is the Father, him who is, who was, and who is to come. We'll see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. What's interesting about this trinitarian formula is that the Holy Spirit seems to be referred to second. It says, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, depending on your translation, uh, the seven spirits could be understood as the sevenfold spirit. Uh, and perhaps this is a reference to the book of uh, Isaiah chapter 11, where it's the spirit of righteousness and the spirit of peace. And it, it, There's a seven spirits, depending on how you uh, read Revelation 11, uh, referred to in, in that, I'm sorry, read Isaiah chapter 11. There seem to be seven spirits in that passage. The idea then being the sevenfold spirit, and it perhaps is a reference to the Holy Spirit. In fact, I think it likely is, especially because it's put in the middle of this Trinitarian formula with the Father, the Spirit, and then the Son. Why is Jesus last in this Trinitarian formula in the book of Revelation? Perhaps, of course, it's to accent Jesus, and it's from Jesus Christ. Now, notice he's called the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. You'll notice threefold references. The Father is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And now Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. What's very important here is to note that of all the titles given to Jesus in the book of Revelation, and all the descriptions of, uh, about Jesus, you know, especially the, the, the great description uh, that's going to come at the end of chapter 1, uh, the one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and, and, and it goes on and on. Of all the titles and descriptions of Jesus in the book of Revelation, the very first one is the faithful witness. Now, this is extremely important. It's extremely important for, another, for one reason, that is this. The portrait of Jesus is going to be very important in the book of Revelation, as well as in the entirety of the New Testament. Because the people of God are going to be called to be imitators of Jesus. We're going to go do what Jesus did and do it the way Jesus did it. Uh, You see, for example, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, "Uh, uh, uh, I am the light of the world. But you see in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you're the light of the world. The role and mission and person of Jesus is to be fulfilled by God's people. We're to carry out that role and that purpose and that mission in the same way that Jesus did. So Jesus is the faithful witness, and that's going to set the stage for us now. We, we kind of know already that the book of Revelation is going to be an encouragement to God's people to go out and be faithful witnesses just as Jesus did. And we'll see that, in fact, in chapters 2 and 3 uh, in even more detail. Now, the seven churches are in Asia. Uh, the number seven has likely a literal and a figurative uh, um, uh, significance to it. Uh, one, We're going to see, as I mentioned last time, numbers are going to play a significant role in the book of Revelation. Certain numbers had certain meanings that were simply just known and understood by the people of that day. Two is the number of witness, based on the book of Deuteronomy. Whenever there's two two of something there, oftentimes it refers to a credible witness. So the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 tells us that their witness is trustworthy, their witness is true. Seven often refers to completion, perfection, totality. Uh, It's often reserved for God. Uh, Perhaps the idea maybe implicit in the book of Revelation is that God is 777, Father, Son, and Spirit. And perhaps that's the reason why 666 is so important. It's Satan's effort to imitate God, the Trinity, uh, with the dragon and the two beasts imitating the Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, as well as the fact that they come up short. They don't attain to 777, they're only 666. Uh, The numbers uh, 12 will often refer to the people of God, and you'll see the number 12, Uh, uh, abundantly in Revelation chapter 21 and the description of the New Jerusalem. There are 12 gates and uh, uh, 12 stones. and uh, So uh, the number 12 then refers to God's people. And perhaps that's where the 144,000 come from. Maybe it's 12 times 12. Old Testament saints times the New Testament saints times 1,000. So the meaning of these numbers is not something loose and subject to interpretation and something that the liberals are just going to take and run rampant with. The meanings were well-grounded, well-grounded in the context and well-grounded in the culture. Uh, now, the number seven in this instance, then, perhaps literally indeed refers to the fact that there were seven churches in Asia to whom John wrote these letters. We know that because they're spelled out in chapters two and three in particular, as well as being referenced in verse 11 of chapter uh, chapter one. Uh, but at the same time, the number seven, and with as with numbers in the book of Revelation, I would argue that the primary meaning is that it's symbolic. It may be literal as well. There indeed were seven churches. Um, But the primary meaning is going to be the symbolic significance. And that is, seven represents completion, totality, perfection, or fullness. So perhaps these seven churches then refers to the church universal. These are letters written to seven churches, but they're letters written to all of Christianity. Which, by the way, makes sense because that's kind of the nature of the biblical text as well. Even though Paul's letters or Peter's letters or Jude's letters were written to a particular individual or to a particular church or group of churches, we know full well that those letters were meant to be read by everyone. They weren't meant just for them. Perhaps the most significant example of that would be the letter of Second Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy and he names his mother and his grandmother by name. It's a very personal correspondence from the Apostle Paul to a man named Timothy. But when you look at it carefully, we begin to realize that Paul realized that other people were going to read this letter. It wasn't meant for just Timothy. In fact, uh, uh, grace be to you all is how the letter ends. And the word you in the Greek is actually plural. Paul knows that others are reading these letters. Uh, The letters of chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation, by the way, give us a clear indication that these letters were not meant just for that one single church. After all, it says, If anyone has an ear, ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each of the seven letters has that phrase, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church as. So they weren't meant just for one individual church, but for a larger scope, if not all of Christendom. So perhaps again, the number seven here for seven churches refers to the church universal. Now, the next thing that's important to note is that he has made us, it says in verse six, he's made us to be a kingdom and priest to his God. This is so significant. It cannot be overstated. Uh, in the book of Exodus, we see the primary description of God's people in the book of Exodus, chapter nineteen, is that you'll be for me a kingdom and priests. You're going to be a holy nation. Israel's call was to be a kingdom that were priests. Uh, priests are mediators, mediators between God and man. The nation of Israel was to be set apart so that God would, would uh, so that they could mediate between God and the rest of the nations. Israel was never called for its own purpose. It was always called. To be a blessing unto the nations. So, this is going to be a kingdom and priests. And now we see this cardinal description of Israel's self understanding applied to God's people in the New Testament. We're going to see this throughout the New Testament, but especially throughout our study of the book of Revelation. Kings and priests are what God's people are called to be. We are to rule over the world, but to do so as priests. Uh, But now, mind you, we're to be kings and priests just like Jesus was. And of course, we're going to know that Jesus was a king and Jesus was a priest who actually laid down his own life. In other words, he was not just a priest, he was also the sacrifice. So then when God's people are called to imitate Jesus as the faithful witness, we should already know by by now that faithful witness means faithful even unto and through death. And we'll see this in chapter 12 in in more detail. Uh, So there's an irony And the irony of being kings and priests is the fact that we are kings and priests in the middle of tribulation. Uh, One biblical writer, a commentator said, if with John, we know Jesus as the ruler of the kings of the earth and as the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, who made us a kingdom and priest to his God and father, end quote, then our primary identity will be rooted in our place in the kingdom of God, which we share with the redeemed from every people, tribe, nation, and language group. It will not be rooted in some national or political body constructed by human beings in their party lines. This is so important. Our primary identity is as the people of God. We are kings of God's kingdom. Now, we may live in our various countries around the world, and we may be citizens of those countries, but that's not our primary identity. Our primary identity, this scholar says, David De Silva, uh, will uh, will be rooted in our place in the kingdom of God. To him be the glory forever and ever. Verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. Jesus is being described in verse 7 as coming with the clouds of heaven. We'll see a couple references in the book of Revelation to one coming, uh, one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, for example, in chapter 14. Coming on the clouds of heaven, of course, however, was rever- was something reserved for God in the Old Testament. Remember uh, when the Israelites wandered in, in the wilderness for 40 years, there was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that, that marked the presence of God. Clouds are common symbols for God's presence. Coming on the clouds of heaven, of course, is uh, likely a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and, and Zechariah chapter 12, verse uh, 10. And it refers to the, uh, a, a testimony in, in, in Zechariah Uh, which is an an Old Testament quotation which were used in the early church to support the claims that Jewish prophecies about the coming of the Messiah and the end times had been fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Clouds, then, are used for the presence of God, and so Christ is then being described as coming at the end of time for the judgment uh, uh, of Israel's enemies. All the tribes of the earth, then, probably refers to not necessarily every person without exception, but all people without distinction, that is, people or believers, uh, from every single nation. They will uh, uh, mourn over him, even so. Amen. The Father, then, is described as the Alpha and the Omega, uh, the Lord God, the One who is, who who was, and who is to come, and the Almighty. We're going to note descriptions to the Father directly occur in chapter 1 and in chapter 22. Um, But notice also that the only description of God in the book of Revelation is actually the same as the description of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 17 of the book of Revelation is going to say, uh, Do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. And later on in chapter 22, 13, Jesus is going to be described as the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning uh, and the end. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in the book what you see, and send to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, to Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This begins what what I'm going to refer to as the first of the of two key stories in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a narrative, and it's going to be very important to understand the book of Revelation as a narrative. It's telling a story. Uh, I think that there are two stories, a major uh, biblical commentator who's a uh, uh, wonderfully uh, adept at the book of Revelation, argues that there's three stories, so either way. The first story clearly begins in chapter 1, verse 9. John, we're told, was on, on an island called Patmos, and he, and he hears a voice like the sound of a trumpet, and he's told by that voice to write in a book what he sees and to send it to the seven churches. So there's your context, there's your setting, there's your, there's your narrative uh, uh, framework. John's on an island, he hears a voice, he's told to write in a book what he's about to see, And he's going to turn in verse 12 and see, uh, well, he's going to see Jesus. Uh, John then uh, proceeds in chapters 2 and 3 to write seven letters to the seven churches. Therefore, by the time we get to the end of chapter 3, we kind of expect the book to end. After all, the narrative is, John's on an island, he hears a voice, he's told by that voice to write what he sees, uh, and, and he does so. End of story. We really should expect that the book of Revelation would end at that particular point then. But when we get to chapter 4, we're going to realize that John's going to begin a second story. And after these things, I saw a door standing open in heaven. So this first story then is set with John on the island of Patmos. Now it's common to interpret the book of Revelation as though John is a political exile on the island of Patmos. That perhaps he was sent there for preaching about Jesus and maybe banished uh, to the island of Patmos. The reality is that we actually don't know that from the book of Revelation itself. It just simply says he was on the island because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, meaning he could have been there as a missionary. He was there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It could also mean that he was there because he was preaching about the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, and he was sent there as a political exile. The text is unclear. Historically, the other problem becomes the fact that we have no knowledge that the island of Patmos was ever used as a a penal colony. Uh, Other islands around uh, the island of Patmos was indeed used as a penal colony, and it does appear, in fact, that the island of Patmos was actually inhabited at the time of John. So he wasn't sent there in isolation uh, to be a political prisoner. It, 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 so it appears. Maybe he's simply there as a missionary. Now, sometimes there's a trick question I like to introduce at times when I'm teaching classes. And I'll say, where was the book of Revelation written from? And everyone, of course, says it's the island of Patmos. And I'll say, listen, I told you that it was a trick question. It says here in verse 9 that I was on the island called Patmos. In other words, when John had the vision, this first vision in the first story, and perhaps the second vision beginning in chapter 4 that makes up the second story, that when John had the vision, he was on the island. But now it appears that he's not on the island any longer. I was on the island, which means that the book of Revelation was actually penned after John had left the island of Patmos. Now that's a little bit important for the simple reason. The book of Revelation is masterfully crafted. It's not like John just sat down had a vision and was penning everything that happened in the vision while it happened. And then when the vision ended, John said, okay, great, here's my completed text. It's very clear that John has taken time to craft the book of Revelation. Certain names and titles for God, as I've already mentioned, occur certain numbers of times, often seven. Certain words occur 12 times or, or, or 28 times or seven times or uh, three times. You, you see that John has clearly, and it seems like he's intentionally counted, the actual number of words that that sometimes, these, the number of times that these particular words have occurred. So it appears that John has maybe taken his notes. Because while it's on the island of Patmos, he's told to write what he sees. And perhaps he does actually write it. But then maybe that John left the island of Patmos, most likely going back to Ephesus, where it appears that he was the bishop and leader of the early church. And then he actually took those notes and then crafted them into a, a masterpiece of, of literature. Now it says in verse 9, That I, John, am your brother and fellow partaker, and note again three things tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance. It's going to be important to note that tribulation, of course, is used throughout the New Testament as uh, something that the people of God have to undergo. In the book of Acts, Paul says, We must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Chapter 14, verse 23. Tribulation is the common plight of God's people. Uh, It's popular in in popular Christian theology to suggest that tribulation is something the world has to undergo. And the idea being that when all the bad things begin to happen on the earth, according to the book of Revelation in chapter 6, that God's people are actually removed from it because God's people won't have to undergo uh, tribulation. And the answer is, tribulation is the lot of the Christian life. In me you have peace, Jesus says in John 16, but in the world you have tribulation. Take courage, I have overcome the world. Tribulation is the lot of the, of the Christian life, and John is our brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation. But then note the next item: kingdom, the dominion of power and rule. What Adam and Eve were created to do was to have dominion and authority and authority and rule over the earth. That Jesus Himself has has fulfilled and begun as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and now, through Jesus, we are inheritors of that kingdom. But again, note it's a kingdom of suffering. Uh, we're a kingdom of of, of priests. Uh, But our kingdom is one that's associated with tribulation. And therefore, it calls for perseverance or patient endurance, depending on your translation. And this word itself will actually occur seven times. It's the main Christian virtue. The idea of patient endurance or or perseverance is the ability to to bear up under difficult circumstances. It's one of the works of God's faithful people. And and in particular, in chapter 13, it's going to mean that it's going to be an an active resistance to the beast and and to Babylon. Uh, in chapter 14, p- uh, patient endurance or perseverance will be obedience to the commandment of God and faith in Jesus. It's the power of the kingdom then to overcome and endure evil. The point then is the book of Revelation describes the church and its suffering and the people of God and their suffering because our task and our mission is going to be to be the light of the world. We're going to be the seven lampstands and we're going to make Christ known. But as we make Christ known, we're going to do so as kings who must endure suffering and opposition. The world has their own kings, and the world doesn't always want to hear this message of Jesus as Lord, and that Jesus is the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. All right, the voice was like a trumpet, it says, and uh, which echoes uh, the trumpet sound at Mount Sinai. And John is then commissioned to, pro- to write, very similar to the charge given to the prophets in Exodus 17, Isaiah 30, Jeremiah 37, and Jeremiah 39. John says he saw... Uh, uh, one uh, verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been caused to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I felt at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars, then, the imagery of that is easy for us to understand. We're told the seven lampstands represent the seven churches, and the seven stars represent the angels of the seven churches. They could be viewed as guardian angels, and some commentators actually believe that they're referred to as the leadership within the church, that maybe it's the pastors or or, or leaders. Uh, Either way, uh, note, lampstands, of course, exist before the Lord uh, in the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus. These ones, however, are before Christ. Christ is now our priest and he tends to the lamps. It illustrates the church's function of being a light unto the world. Note that in Zechariah, there's only going to be one lampstand, as we'll note later on when we get to chapter 11 in the book of Revelation. But here, there are seven lampstands that refer to the church universal. Furthermore, the lampstand in the tabernacle of uh, of the Old Testament was a symbol of God's presence, especially true in the book of Zechariah, again, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Note Revelation 11, verse 4 says that the two lampstands stand before the Lord of the earth. Again, it symbolizes being in the presence of God. Now, John says that he, he saw one like a son of man. This is, of course, Jesus' favorite title for himself used throughout the Gospels. It's a title that refers to a prophet in the book of Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel's favorite title for himself as well. but in Daniel chapter 7 it refers perhaps to one like a son of man who approached the throne of God. It's the representative of Israel who, who approached the throne of God of the ancient of days in Daniel chapter 7. So the idea here now is it's Jesus uh, uh, it, it described in, really in, in language that befits the description of God. He's dressed in a robe which is a high priestly garments. Uh, long robes were worn by all kinds of dignitaries in the ancient world, uh, garments of the elite, but the, long, the longer a person's robe was, the higher the social status. Christ's robe, note, by the way, reaches down to his feet. He's girded around his chest with a golden sash. Normally the, a belt was uh, worn around the waist so that, so it could be girded here. Um, but his head and his hair were white like white wool, which, of course, is a description of God in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. His eyes were like a blazing fire, probably references his judgment. Throughout the Old Testament, uh, fire is often a symbol of judgment. His feet were like bronze, which indicates strength and moral purity. His voice was like the sound of many waters. Now listen carefully to that, to that phrase, because we're going to see that phrase come back a couple times uh, later in the book of Revelation. His voice like the sound of many waters. It's a reference to Christ's voice. It's a reference also to the voice of the multitude. But we'll also note that in chapter 17 and following, the harlot sits on many waters. Uh, in his right hand, he held seven stars, which we've already told, we've already identified them as angels. And out of his mouth comes a sharp double-edged sword, which is, of course, a reference to the Word of God, especially Hebrews 4, verse 12. Uh, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. This, like, uh, again, indicates Christ is that end-time judge. Uh, he's the Messiah. But note carefully that the one weapon that Christ has comes from his mouth. Uh, that's not a normal place for a sword. That means that the, the means through which Jesus fights or the means through which he wages war is actually his words. It's a common perception that people have of the book of Revelation that it describes war and violence and bloodshed. Well, it kind of does, but that really actually is not what Revelation is about. The only warfare that takes place is the words of Christ that come from his mouth. He slays his enemies, according to Second Thessalonians, with the breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming. So even though the armies of the world are going to be Gathered together to make war against Christ and against His followers, the warfare actually is not what we kind of think it is. God's people don't wage war by fighting back. God's people wage war by laying down their lives. And then finally, it says, His face was shining like the sun. John, when he saw Jesus, he fell at His feet. He was not worthy to be standing as an equal. But then Jesus laid His right hand upon upon John and said, "Do not be afraid. I am the first, and I am the last. Remember that's a title reserved for God." Uh, but it's going to be used about for, for Jesus uh, several times in the book of Revelation. I'm the living one. So even though he was dead, he is now alive. And this becomes encouragement, because remember, Jesus was the faithful witness, but his faithful witness was unto death. But there's no nothing to fear, because his death has only read, led to his resurrection. And he holds the keys of death uh, and Hades. There's a quote in, in a biblical commentator who makes reference to the fact that a great preacher in the black tradition once told it on an Easter Sunday uh, while he was playing the role of Satan and he shouted to the demonic host, He's got away! He's got away! And he's got the keys! That's indeed the case. Jesus not only got away, he's got away from death and Hades and he has the keys. Right now, what is now and what will take place later? Verse 19 is commonly used by those who believe that the book of Revelation describes the future to argue that well, the things that, that, that refer to now as the seven letters of chapters 2 and 3, and the things that will take place later refer to chapter 4 and following. The problem with this, of course, is that it divides the book of Revelation unevenly. It makes a, a, a disjunction between the letters of chapters 2 and 3 and the vision of chapters 4 and following. I'll argue that there's a, an appropriate division in chapter 4. It's the beginning of the second story. But what we're going to notice is that the second story is intimately related to the first story. The vision of Jesus in chapter 1 is going to be important for understanding what's going to transpire in the vision of, in the story of chapters uh, 4 and following. But there's going to be consistent links between the seven letters and the one who overcomes, for example, uh, re- referred to throughout the seven letters, and the one who overcomes referred to throughout the second story of chapters 4 and following. So it's not simple to divide the book up as though chapters 2 and 3 refer to John's day and chapters 4 and following refer to some future generation. Indeed, as we said earlier, the book of Revelation describes the events that have begun with the coming of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and maybe you can even argue the coming of the Spirit, and what will transpire now over the last, of course, continuing to through the day, uh, more than 2,000 years. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes you can follow Rob's blog at determined truth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.